we've been in a series of messages called Beauty for Ashes. Uh, we've been talking about uh, specifically Jesus declared about himself as he started his earthly ministry. He, he read, he got up and he read from Isaiah 61 what was a messianic promise. It was a, a, a promise about Jesus, about who he was, about his identity, about exactly what he would do when he came to earth. And, and when Jesus uh, made this declaration about himself, he said that he was going to, he was going to do an, he was going to create an exchange that would take place, an identity exchange. And you know that from Isaiah 61. We've taken time to look at that. If you've, if you've not been with us over the last several weeks, you can always go to our website. Um, you can download the messages and you can, you can get caught up. We're not going to re-preach all of those messages. But in Isaiah 61, there was this great messianic promise about this exchange that, that Jesus would conduct in our lives when he came to earth. And so over the last several weeks, we've been looking at specific stories in which this exchange took place, this, this exchange between the brokenness of humanity represented by ashes, represented by that place of, of being undone, of, of being at a place of loss, a place of need, that exchange that takes place between that place of loss and, and, and beauty or the crown of beauty. When, when God blesses us and really calls us into our identity, we've been learning several things over the last couple of weeks. The first thing that we learned um, in, the, in the very beginning of this series is that as a follower of Jesus Christ and understanding scripture, I must recognize that I cannot allow condemnation to rule in my life because get this, suffering is not a definitive indicator of sin. Now that's a challenge for many of us because many of us either culturally or socially or because of bad theology, we have been taught or we've come to believe that anytime a person is experiencing suffering or there's something wrong in somebody's life, it must be because they've sinned or their parents have sinned. And we explored a specific passage of scripture in which uh, Jesus came upon a blind man and the, the question that his disciples asked him was, well, wh what did he do? How did he sin or how did his parents sin, but why is he blind? And Jesus made it very clear that his blindness wasn't as a result of his sin or his parents' sin, but his blindness was there as an opportunity for the Father to show his glory. That challenges some of our theology. Now, the truth is, there are many of us who suffer the consequences of our sin. There are many of us who suffer the consequences of choices and decisions we make. And, and we're not negating that, but we are challenging the mindset that says, when I see a person or when I think about myself and I consider when I consider suffering or a problem or a situation, that it is automatically there as a result of failure or my own individual brokenness. It's problematic because it changes the way that we see other people, which changes the way that we treat them, which changes what we contribute to their life. The second thing that we learned, and we talked about this last week, is that when it comes to this idea of beauty or glory, that in, in our human existence, we have to understand that the greatest opportunities for beauty, 
the greatest opportunities for the demonstration of God's glory in our life doesn't come from those places of success. It doesn't come from those places where within our own human power and our own human capacity, we demonstrate something. Instead, the greatest opportunities for beauty in our life comes from those places of humility. It comes from those places where we recognize our weakness. It comes from those places that we recognize that we are, in fact, in need. We are in need of a God who loves us and who rescues us. Many of us have spent our entire lives trying to build up our own dignity. We've spent our entire lives trying to build our own reputation, trying to build our own kingdom. We've spent our entire lives trying to build the, the trappings of Success, all the while, those things don't drive us toward God. They don't drive us toward our identity. Instead, they drive us closer and closer and closer to our, our mother and our father, Adam and Eve, that place of, I want to I wanna be like God myself. I want to I create my own glory. The testimony of Scripture teaches us over and over and over again, the more that you and I embrace our weakness, the more that we embrace that we are a mess in need of a Savior, the closer we get to that Savior who, in fact, exchanges our brokenness for the glory in which he has created us. We learned a, a, a phrase, I'm going to say it again, uh, during this series, it's called attributive dignity. And it's, it's been a key phrase for us because it really unpacks for us what God is doing in our lives and what God expects us to do in the lives of those around us. When we talk about attributive dignity, we're talking about the intentional and active choice to push past the distortion and to see individuals as image bearers and call them to that place of glory that God created them for. It is the active choice, the intentional choice to acknowledge brokenness and to move past that brokenness and to instead of classifying or codifying or locking you or someone else in the box of that brokenness to say, you know what, I see your brokenness, but I see beyond your brokenness to the glory, to the intent with which God created you. He created you in his image for the purpose of his glory. God himself, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, he practices attributive dignity. The work of Jesus is to look at you and to say, my son, my daughter, I acknowledge your brokenness. I engage your brokenness and I engage it to call you forward into the image that I created you in, into my image. But not only that, not only does God do that for you personally, but he also, as one who follows him, he's calling you and I to participate in that process for others. As you and I follow Jesus, we've been called into a process in which we practice attributive dignity. We look at other people and instead of looking at them and locking them in the box of their brokenness and saying, whose fault was it? Was it their fault? Was it their mother's fault? Was it their father's fault? It's got to be. So instead of locking them in that place of brokenness, we look at them and say, they were created in the image of God and God has something more for them. He has something better for them. Instead of participating in the system, System, get this, instead of participating in a system that keeps them in that place of brokenness, we interrupt the system of brokenness and we call them in for, we call them forward into the system of freedom. God has called you and I to interrupt the brokenness, to pull people forward into a life of 
freedom. This is significant and it's important, again, not for just for us as individuals, but for us collectively as a church because this process of attributive dignity stands in opposition to exactly what the enemy does. The enemy doesn't practice attributive dignity. Instead, what the enemy does is he practices regressive dignity. Regressive dignity is the intentional and active choice to draw an individual back into their brokenness, get this, and to reduce, those, reduce them to those things which are an expression of their distortion. Jesus said, I've come to take beauty, to take beauty and to exchange it for ashes. In other words, I've called, I've come to call you into the glory that God created you for. The work of the enemy is exactly the opposite. The work of the enemy is to, is to pull you and I back into that place, to regressively pull us back into that place in which our dignity has been stripped from us and we are reminded, we regressively go back again and again and again to expressions of our distortion. The enemy wants to remind you. He wants to remind me of our brokenness. He wants to remind me of exactly where I came from. Not so that I would be humble before the Lord, but so that I would remember and return to that place. He wants me to return to my brokenness. He wants me to return to my addiction. He wants me to return to, to being that same person in shame, that same person in want, that same person in need. We as Christ followers have been called to not participate in regressive dignity. We as Christ followers have been called to participate in attributive dignity. We as Christ followers have been called to be people who don't return when the enemy calls us to that place of brokenness, but instead assert what the Lord has said about us. You and I have to determine in our heart that what Jesus has said about us is far more true and far more real than what the enemy says about us. Well, this morning, let's take a further look at a, another story that demonstrates the process of exchange that takes place between beauty and ashes. We're going to read a story that's found in, it's actually found in three of the Gospels, and we're just going to read one of the accounts this morning. I, I would encourage you uh, this week during your daily 20 to uh, go look at all three of the accounts of this story because you'll see some different you'll see some different details and I may allude to some of the details this morning but for the sake of time I'm only going to read uh, from one of the accounts found in Luke in Luke chapter 8 let me read verses 26 through 29 to you it says they being Jesus and the disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes which is across the lake from Galilee when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you. Don't torture me. This is the demons speaking through this man. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into a solitary place. 
this story, this episode in Scripture comes right in the middle of, of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is going. Uh, he's teaching the people through parables. He's uh, performing signs and wonders and miracles in front of the people. And it's in full swing. And in the middle of his ministry, he leaves Galilee, gets on the boat, and he goes to the other side. In fact, I would encourage you again, during your daily 20, read from Luke chapter 8. Because as you read from Luke chapter 8, you're going to find some interesting, you're going to find some interesting things. Remember, we've talked about in this series, this series, Beauty for Ashes, really is about seeing and being seen. Beauty for Ashes is about seeing and being seen. Attributive dignity is about seeing and being seen. And when you read Luke chapter 8, what you're going to find is that there were people who were around Jesus. There were people who were benefiting from the ministry of Jesus, but couldn't really see who he was. They had seen miracles. They had seen signs and wonders. They had seen him do a lot of incredible things, but they were still confused about his identity. You may say, Pastor, why are you pointing that out? I'm pointing it out because it is so fascinating when you come to this episode in chapter 8. Because remember what I just read to you. The Bible says that when Jesus got off the boat, that this demon-possessed man saw Jesus and ran to him. If you read it in one of the other passages recorded in, uh, apparently the, the guy was a long ways off. And, and when Jesus got off the boat, the man saw Jesus and, and the demons compelled him to run to Jesus and to fall on his face in submission and honor of Jesus and begin to cry out to Jesus, Jesus, please don't torture us. Now get this. Jesus is traveling with a band of disciples who've seen him do signs and wonders and miracles. The passage, this passage that we just read, the episode right before it. In other words, when they were on the lake and they were traveling from Galilee to this graveyard. When they were on the way, a storm comes. This huge storm comes. And in the middle of the storm, Jesus says, be still to the storm and the storm is quiet. And what did the disciples say? Remember, these are the guys who've been living with Jesus. They've been walking with Jesus. They've been benefiting from Jesus' ministry. What did they say? Who is this guy? Who is this guy that even the wind and the wave stand still? Think about it for a minute. The people who have been benefiting from his ministry, the people who have been closest to him, the people who have seen him do signs and wonders and miracles, still couldn't see him. And yet the demons from a long way off saw him and came running. The demons who were opposed to him, who had rejected him, knew who he was. The disciples, hello, were still confused. The ones who were closest to him were still confused. The ones who had received the benefit of the miracle, the guys who were there when the water was turned into wine, the guys who were there when 
He did all these incredible, fanciful, amazing things. We're still confused about, they still needed more proof. They still needed more clarity. But the demons came running in submission. I don't know, man. Well, you know, God, if you would just answer one more prayer, then I'll believe in you. No, you won't. Lord, you know I got this bill to pay. And if you'll come through and do this financial miracle for me this time, then I'll start tithing. No, you won't. It's not about, it's not about more miracles. It's not about more signs. It's not about him showing himself another time. It's about either you see him or you don't see him. The demons who were not interested in another five loaves and a few fish miracle, who were only interested in, hey, please don't send us to the abyss yet. See, they already knew who he was, they knew who they were, and they knew where they were going, and they still submitted to him. I really don't think that it's about another miracle. I don't think it's about him proving himself to us. I think it's about us seeing him. They saw him, and they came, and they responded. They said, Jesus, please, please don't. Don't send us to the abyss yet. Is it possible that the problem in our life isn't that the devil is so powerful? Isn't that we have an enemy who's so powerful? I mean, if you just read this story, the devil knows his place. The enemy knows his place. He knows he's a defeated enemy. I think for many of us as Christians, we run around scared all the time of our enemy and our enemy already knows he's defeated. The problem isn't the enemy, the problem is us. We don't see and we don't understand that we are seen. We don't understand, we, we refuse to accept, we refuse to submit. We're waiting for more proof and more evidence. And this, this man came and he was crumbled in front of Jesus and, and, and get this conversation Jesus has with the demons. Who, what's your name? Who are you? And the, the demon answers, we are, we are, we're legion. We are many. Now, the word legion uh, referring to the Roman army would have been 6,000. We don't know if there were literally 6,000 demons in this guy or if there was just a lot. We know there was a lot because we know that when Jesus sent the demons out, they went into a whole herd of pigs and the pigs went into the water. It was, it was, it was thousands of pigs. It was a lot of pigs. So we know there was a lot. We know the man was, was heavily demonized. You know what's also crazy about this? Stop and think about this for a second because we read this story, we celebrate this story. But have you ever considered what in the world Jesus was doing there? Anybody know how Jewish people feel about pigs? Jesus had sailed across the water from Galilee, not not to go find a Jewish man, but to find a Gentile. 
Jesus had crossed the water and he'd gone to find one that he was looking for because he had a purpose. He had a purpose. Jesus went looking for him in spite of culture, in spite of uncleanliness, in spite of circumstances, in spite of inconvenience. Jesus went looking for this guy and he found him. And he says to the demons, go. Go. And they went into a herd of pigs and, and these pig farmers, these non-Jewish people, these these people, they said the pig farmers, the, the guys who were watching the pigs, they went into town and they got everybody and they said, you're not going to believe what happened. And those people came running and, and, and it says, scripture says when they found him, that they found him clothed and in his right mind. Sitting there, listening to Jesus, fellowshipping with Jesus. Here he had gone from the crazy guy among the tombs. The crazy guy in the graveyard, the broken guy, the guy that no matter how many chains they put on him, they couldn't, they couldn't control him. They couldn't contain him. He was so oppressed. He was so broken that he had been pushed outside of the community. He had been driven to a place of being alone. See, the work of the enemy, the work of the enemy is always crystal clear. What it does is it brings bondage and ultimately isolation into our lives. You can always tell the work of the enemy. The work of the enemy brings bondage and isolation to our lives. You can find that same story repeated over and over and over and over again in, your, in, your, in Scripture. You may say, Pastor Andy, how, I, how do I know if this is from the Lord or if it's from the enemy? Well, the enemy always does that. He always brings us to a place of bondage and isolation. And here this man was in isolation and Jesus came. And he found him in spite of the fact that he was a pig, a people who, who herded pigs. In, in spite of culture, in spite of circumstance, Jesus went and found him. And the people came and they find him clothed and in his right mind. And then get this, this is what scripture says. Scripture says, and they were afraid. And they were so afraid that they asked Jesus to leave. This blows my mind. Here is this man who had lived among them. They knew him. They had tried to contain him. Here's this man that everybody knew about and he gets free. He gets free and instead of celebrating his freedom, instead of asking the one who brought him freedom question, instead of saying, how do I get some of that for myself? The Bible says that they get scared and they ask Jesus to leave. I've read this story my whole life. And I've, I've wondered, how in the world was it that what scared them was the man's freedom and not the man's craziness? How had they come to such a place in their community that they had accommodated his torment but were unwilling to embrace his deliverance? Think about it. They had worked hard at accommodating his torment. 
They had worked hard at accommodating his brokenness. They had put all kinds of chains on him, Scripture said. They had fashioned all kinds of, uh, of things to restrain him. The Bible says that they had even put guards over him. They had done everything that they could to accommodate his brokenness, but they were unwilling to accept or embrace his deliverance. Think about it just, just for a minute. Have, have, have we come to a place where, like these people, we've become more comfortable normalizing the crazy naked guy in the graveyard than we have embracing the one who brings deliverance and freedom? Are we more scared? Of the freedom that comes from the one that we cannot explain, that we cannot understand. Are we more scared of freedom than we are the crazy, naked guy in the graveyard? Have we normalized oppression so much that we're not scared of it anymore, but when freedom comes... We become uncomfortable. I'm not scared anymore of people's madness, of their craziness, of their oppression, of the fact that they've been stripped of dignity, that they have been shamed, that they've been chained over and over. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable. I've accommodated that in my community. But when freedom comes, all of a sudden I'm ready to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, we got to do something about this. That, that community had accommodated his brokenness, but were unwilling to embrace his deliverer. God help us. I'm afraid in, in 2021 that we've come to that exact same place. I will normalize brokenness. I will make space for it in my community. I will adjust my language. I'll, I'll, I'll adjust my vocabulary. I'll, I'll adjust what I think is normal. I will, I will make excuses for brokenness. I'll, I will make excuses for the fact that there's a crazy naked guy in the graveyard. I'll just accept it. I'll ignore it. I'll act like it isn't there. I'll act like everything is perfect in my world. But then the deliverer comes and all of a sudden we're going to have a community meeting and get this thing straight. We're going to have a family meeting and talk about how we, because there's a problem here. Have we become so accustomed to the absence of dignity that when dignity comes, we have no room for it in our community? Have we become so accustomed to people being broken that when they get, they get free, it scares us? When they have dignity, it scares us. When they put on clothes and they're in their right mind, they start to think with clarity. They start to have the ability to articulate for themselves. When they're no longer under the control of powers and forces that they can't seem to manage, that all of a sudden I'm threatened by that. That's exactly what the enemy always wants to do. He wants to keep us in this place where we're broken, where we can't speak for ourselves. We can't control ourselves. We, we have no dignity. We have no choice. We have no choice. 
We have no capacity to make things right or to live with control. The enemy would rather us be out of control. He would rather us have no choice. He would, and, and we just as a culture and as a society, I believe as a world, we just have built systems to accommodate, to try to contain the crazy rather than offer freedom and deliverance. Jesus showed up. He went out of his way. He broke protocol. He sailed across the water to people that he didn't belong among because he saw this man for who he was created and intended to be. He saw this man clothed and in his right mind. Listen, I don't understand it. I can't explain it, but I know, I know we live in a world that is more scared of your freedom than it is concerned with your brokenness. We live in a world and a culture and society that can explain you, that can understand you, that can qualify and quantify and categorize you as long as you stay broken. But when you get free, when you put on clothes, when all of a sudden you have some worth, you have some dignity, you have some, some pride about yourself. Not, I'm not talking about broken pride. I'm not talking about unhealthy pride. I'm not talking about the kind of pride that is built on. I'm talking about the kind of pride that sees yourself in the image of God. When you have that kind of worth and that kind of value, sir, when you, kind of have, when you have that kind of worth and you have that kind of value, ma'am, the system, the world, the brokenness of Humanity is threatened by that. When you're in your right mind, I love that expression. Listen, let's just go ahead. Let's just say it. We're all crazy. We love you, but you're crazy. I'm crazy. We're all broken. Distortion exists. We all experience it. The enemy of our soul hates us. And he does everything he can do to torment us and to draw us, to pull us away from the identity that God has created us for. And we live in a world and a system that just layer upon layer upon layer normalizes the insanity of it all so that it can excuse it and wipe it under the rug and act like it doesn't exist. And yet Jesus breaks into that insanity. He breaks into the craziness. He breaks into the torment. And he says, this isn't right you weren't meant to live like this. You weren't meant to look like this. You weren't meant to act like this. You weren't meant to think like this. He breaks in and he gives us a right mind. The system, the enemy of your soul, he doesn't want you to have a right mind. He wants our mind to stay in that place of torment. He wants our mind to stay in that place of subjugation. He wants our mind to stay in that place where we see ourselves as slaves. We see ourselves as powerless. Everything in the world today is all about pushing you and I to a place in which we feel powerless. Now, there are a lot of you in this room. North Place is your church, and so you love me, and so there's a lot of grace and peace for me. 
So what I'm about to say probably won't offend you, but there's some of you who are visitors to today, and I'm just going to pray for a supernatural impartation of grace and peace because I'm going to say something that's probably going to be a little bit controversial, but it's just the truth. There's never been, I believe, a greater time in history in which everyone on the planet has been driven to a place of embracing their powerlessness. If you're of color, you're powerless because you've been subjugated throughout all of human history. So you're powerless. If you're not of color, then you've been the subjugator for all of human history or a great portion of human history, the last part of modern history. And so as the subjugator, you now have no voice or no right to speak because what are you doing speaking? Because if you speak, all you're doing is speaking out of your, ten your internal tendency to be an oppressor. So anyone of color can't speak because you're subjugated. Anyone who's not of color can't speak because if you're speaking, all you're doing is, all you're doing is demonstrating your internal hardwire. You can't help it need to subjugate everybody around you. So we're all running around. Oh, aren't this graveyard beautiful? Isn't it wonderful in this graveyard? We better not say anything. <laughs> let me just go. I'm, I already crossed the line, so let me just go a little deeper. If your sexuality is what sexuality is supposed to be throughout all this time of modern history and what culture and society said, you better not say anything because you weren't born with a sexuality that is different. So you don't have a right to speak because as someone with normalized sexuality, you don't have the right to speak to people who, who have been born with a sexuality that is in question. So you don't say anything because you have, you have been an oppressor of everyone who's been born in modern history who's had some sort of sexuality that is different. So you're the oppressor, so you better not say anything about sexuality because anything you say is wrong and just a further form of your subjugation of those who, who, don't who, don't, who aren't born the same way as you. And if you were born and, and, and your sexuality doesn't fit normative standards, then you have been oppressed all of your life. And, and so you feel like you're the victim of every system. And it, so no matter which way we turn, we're all victims. We've all lost our voice. We're all powerless. And that's exactly where the enemy wants us to be. No voice no control, no capacity, just go run among the tombs and pretend like it's okay. Pretend like it's normal. But Jesus steps in. And he sees us as we were created. I don't Please hear my heart. I'm, I'm going to say something, and you've got to hear it through the lens of my heart that loves you. I don't care how you feel. I care about you, but your feelings are not your identity. Your craving is not your identity. Your desire is not your identity. 
But everything about culture and society and this moment that we live in history says, no, you're defined by how you feel. You're defined by what you crave. Jesus steps in and he says, I see you. I see, I see you as you were created. I'm calling you into this. And it's going to disrupt. It's going to disrupt everything. And there's anything that a system of oppression doesn't receive is a system of oppression refuses to receive disruption of that oppression. Those people were scared, more scared of the one who brought liberation than they were of the one who was in bondage. That tells me something was wrong. I submit to you that in 2021, we are, we are more scared of the one who brings freedom and what it means to us than we are of the brokenness that we're living in. And we're normalizing crazy people running around the tombs naked. We're normalizing brokenness. We're normalizing brokenness rather than calling people forward into their healing. What will that mean for you in your life? What would it mean for you in your life if Jesus crossed the water, stepped into your, your right now, and said, you know what, Randy? I see you. Not as you are. I see you for who God created you to be. Here's what it's going to mean for you to be clothed and in your right mind. What would that mean for you? What would it mean for your everyday existence? What would it mean for us as North Place Church if we were postured in, in such a way? If we were postured in such a way that we didn't participate in the normalizing of brokenness, but instead we were postured in such a way that we walked in the power, in the power of calling people forward into their healing and wholeness. What would it mean for us? How would it change things for us? I'm gonna ask you to stand with me all across this place. This series is all about an exchange, beauty for ashes. It's all about things being different, things changing. The promise of this series is that the Lord wants to do a work of change in us individually, but he's doing a work of change in us collectively. There's so many things that God's word is clear about, but we've muddied the water because we're more interested in normalizing the brokenness than we are experiencing true freedom because we've allowed culture and society we've allowed a broken system of oppression to determine our identity as the church more than we have the king of kings and the lord of lords who stepped into out of eternity and stepped into our existence to change everything We've shrunk back in fear. 
we've shrunk back in fear. Why are we afraid of freedom? Why are we afraid of freedom? Well, maybe it'll cost me my herd of pigs. Maybe that's why I'm afraid of freedom. It'll cost me my livelihood and my system of control. It'll cost me my reputation. It'll cost me how everybody sees me or what they think about me. Maybe. Maybe I'm afraid because I've never heard this before. I mean, he doesn't belong here. He's, he's a Jewish Messiah who belongs on the other side of the water. I've never heard about a Messiah who comes, who, who delivers. Maybe I've never heard this kind of gospel before. I just thought this was the way it was supposed to be. Maybe that's why I'm afraid. Maybe I'm afraid because it challenges my view of the world. I don't know. I don't know why we're afraid. But on that day, the crowd rejected the deliverer. Rejected the deliverer because of fear. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Perhaps you're here today and perhaps there's Fear in your heart, fear of what it'll cost, fear of what it'll mean, fear of what you don't understand. Perhaps there's fear in your heart that's keeping you from responding to the freedom that God has for you. I want to invite you this morning to set aside your fear and to allow Jesus to do what only he can do. To allow Jesus to push past the labels, to push past culture, to push past brokenness, to push past what you've never seen and what you don't understand and to push past all of those things and to confront those broken places in your life and to bring to you the healing and the hope that only He can bring. I want to invite you today if you're a believer and you're in this place and perhaps like me, you've been challenged today. Lord, help me not to be intimidated and scared. Help me not to shrink back and to lose my voice. Help me to stop living prophetically as one who is speaking to culture and speaking to society and calling it forward into the glory of God because of the normalization of brokenness. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is challenging you today to find your voice, find your boldness, find your, your prophetic edge, your capacity to walk as children of God in His glory, not just in His image, but those who are declaring His glory over the earth, over our city, over individuals' lives. Can I pray for you, Father? I pray for every person here today. 
whether whether it's those who are in need of you, who are in need of you bringing healing and hope and life to them just as that man among the tombs that day, or it is for those who are believers, but God, the truth is, We've embraced a victim mentality, a, a, a mentality as one who is without a voice, one who has embraced the normalization of bondage because I've believed the report of the enemy more than I've believed you. Lord, I pray for, pray for them today. I pray for us today. Let those who need freedom find it in this place. May they step past their fear and step into the fullness of what you have for them. For those of us who, those of us who need God to recognize that as believers, we've been called to live with, to demonstrate and operate in attributive dignity that we are not voiceless, that we are not, that we are not victims, that we are without, not without hope and not without a message. God, call us forward in grace and peace and give us the strength to walk in the fullness of what you've called us to. Lord, bless us as we attempt to demonstrate your glory. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.